Hey Changemaker, I hope you're doing well. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the Hey Changemaker podcast with me, Julia Wicklander. The conversation today is one that really looks into how to do socially transformative work in societies that are seen as extremely difficult and violent. My guest today is Selena DeSola. She is the co-founder and president of Glasswing International, an organization that addresses the root causes and consequences of poverty and violence in 12 countries across Latin America. They do this through community-based education and health, as well as youth empowerment. Selena has 25 years of experience working in international development, as well as in humanitarian settings. She is an Obama Fellow, a Skull Awardee, Audacious Project Grantee, a Fellow of Ashoka and Lego Reimagined Learning, and a Telbey Global Leader. Selena serves on the Advisory Council of the Inter-American Foundation and on several boards. She holds a master's degree in social work and public health from the University of Pennsylvania and Harvard. Our conversation digs into the work of Glasswing International, her journey to being a part of starting the organization and the impact that they've had since then. We also talk about focusing on and truly seeing people when working with social change about trauma and hope. Selena also shares her best advice to other change makers and social entrepreneurs. I'm so grateful for this meaningful conversation and all the wisdom that Selena shares with us. I hope you find it helpful too. Hi, Selena. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm so excited to have this conversation with you. It's great to have you here. I'm ha- I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me, Julie. I'm really excited to join your program. Um, so you're from El Salvador, a country that has alarmingly high rates of violence and homicide. Um, can you share a little bit about the cycle of violence that takes place in El Salvador, but also across the region? Sure. You know, it is. Unfortunately, sometimes we're... Um, the country that what comes up first, if you Google it, it may be things related to that that we do. Unfortunately, um, we have faced in the rec- in recent history and now very high rates of crime and violence. Um, and, and I think, you know, we also had civil wars and we've had kind of intergenerational um, just challenges. We faced a lot of adversity as a very small country, um, but there are also so many amazing things, right, about the country. But um and, and the people and the resilience and, and the determination. So we're lucky enough to see all those other sides of the country too, that I think are really important. In terms of violence, and I, I think, you know, globally we're seeing so, so much escalation and violence in recent years. And one of the things that we're finding is that we we believe through our work and our conversations with young people and community members that we work with and that that are on our team and um we're concerned because we really believe that exposure to stress and trauma over, you know, long periods of time or acute kind of crises moments when we're not able to address those, um, this can end up perpetuating violence or victimization. So a lot of times, you know, you think like people who perpetrate violence are bad people. The way we see it isn't so much like a characterization of people, but um, a consequence of 
of context and adversity and lack of opportunity. Um, and kind of we try to separate that uh, behavior from people and understand what it is that's driving someone um, to commit an act of violence. Because at the end of the day, being a victim or being a perpetrator are both very traumatic. So we're, we're really trying constantly to understand that um, because the, the homicide rates that that are faced are some of the highest rates in the world, right? Particularly Honduras, Guatemala, uh, Honduras, El Salvador in particular. We also have Venezuela and other parts of Latin America. So we really, we really want to understand this better so we can address it in a way that uh, builds upon strengths um, and, and is not punitive, but rather constructive. Yeah. Yeah, and I and your organization, Glasswing International, works to really sort of disrupt the cycles of violence and and support communities. Um, and I really want to talk more about that. But first, um, I'm interested to hear a little bit more about your journey because you left El Salvador as a as a young child or as a kid. Um, and do you want to share a little bit about your journey and what brought you back to El Salvador to actually? you know, continue your work as a change maker in the region? Sure. So I'm, I was born in El Salvador and then we left when I was um, initially, when I was in primary school, probably first grade. Uh, and even before that, we moved to Guatemala during the civil war. And then we moved to Florida and then New Jersey here in the United States. And then back to El Salvador, where I graduated from high school. Um, I was very lucky. I was born in a context where I had everything I needed. Um, I had access to great education, great opportunities. So my my experience is very different than most people who, who live in El Salvador and, and in many cases have had to go seek opportunities elsewhere, have been in, you know, I didn't, as a child, we did, you know, we were growing up and we had a war, but I wasn't facing the kind of adversity that most people were. Um, after I graduated from high school there, I came to the United States where, where I am right now, actually. Um, and I was able to go to university here and, and then study social work in, in graduate school. And then I had uh, the unique opportunity to work in humanitarian assistance for about six years. So my first, I was a social worker. And, and as a social worker, I was I had the opportunity to work as a um, do some kind of crisis intervention and resource and be a resource specialist with uh, families who had recently arrived in the United States, so immigrant families. And then after I graduated, which was which was really, I learned so much um, from so many people and so many families. And then I started working in this humanitarian space. So I worked mostly in areas affected by conflict in the Middle East and mostly West Africa, uh, in parts of Asia, and also um, places affected by natural disasters like you know the tsunami or hurricanes so that experience uh, around the world really also helped me meet incredible people a lot of mentors that I learned from along the way nurses teachers people I met in communities and and then and also made me realize that I wanted to go back to the country that and the region that I'm from right I'm I'm, I'm from El Salvador and I wanted to go back and see how I could try to um, apply what I was learning and learn from again other people from from my country and from the countries around there. So, you know, for me it was really important to move back. I felt that uh, I had um, a lot of opportunities, and I, I felt like it 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 was important to me, and it is important to me to to go back to 
my mm. country. <laughs> yeah, amazing. And it's, I mean, it's a journey. And so what, and sort of how, and, and what brought you to, to start Glasswing International? Um, how was the start of your entrepreneurial journey there? You know, I think part of it, you know, I'm, I was mentioning, I worked in, in the humanitarian space. And I remember being in countries, um, uh, you know, I was fortunate enough, like I said, to meet amazing people. And, and one of the people I met, she ran an organization in, in Afghanistan at the time. And she she's an Afghan woman. And, and she went back and worked in her country in a really tough time, right? This is, um, you know, right after I went, right after 9-11. And, um, and I think part of it was just not only like just meeting people and seeing how much people do for their countries in some of the toughest situations, but also working with people from communities, but also public servants like teachers, nurses in all these different countries. I remember I, I spent a lot of time with nurses in Liberia. And I remember just asking, because part of my job was just asking questions. What, what can we help with? What equipment do you need? It was crisis, right? So that was mainly what I did is just ask, ask, ask. And I think for me, it became really important to think about how to strengthen existing, like things that already existed. So it, as an, you know, as a social entrepreneur, for me, it wasn't coming up with like something new necessarily. It was more like, how can we build upon existing systems? Um, and because so many times we see all these parallel systems being created or programs. So for me, it was like, how do we innovate and how do we ask a lot of questions constantly and over time to make sure that we're doing the best we can to equip to better equip or, or, or provide resources for those who are on the front line always, right? And, and, and for us, that meant like people who are doing public service, because at the end of the day, most kids go to public schools, most people go to public clinics. So that that's something that I, I learned a lot about. And with the other two founders, we were committed to, to seeing how we can strengthen what exists and leverage on strengths of communities, of systems, of countries, of course, like maintaining independence from political or partisan things, but just trying to really um, strengthen what's there, right? Instead of assuming there's just always going to be something new that's needed. Sometimes it's just a little bit of a shift in an approach and not always a new product that's needed or a new service. So that kind of, we fell into it. I can't tell you we had this master plan and we we're like, let's start an organization that's going to do this, this, and this. It was more like we saw this opportunity. We felt like in our case, it was like kids are only in school, public school for four hours a day. The schools are empty in the middle of the day between the morning and afternoon shift. So we talked to teachers, we talked to students. And the first thing we started doing was a volunteer program. And we still volunteering as a part of what we do. But it was like, how can we address a, a, a priority expressed by communities right now? And that was let's expand the school day through after school programs that we did in the middle of the day. It was kind of like leveraging the infrastructure of the public school and bringing in volunteers and people who wanted to, you know, which included teachers and parents. So I think it was that mentality of learning from other people and understanding that around the world, that those on the front lines constantly are an incredible resource. And, and i I feel like we had that conviction to really listen to people from the beginning and not assume we had solutions to something when maybe it wasn't even, it may be a problem that I see, but it's not a problem that someone else, you know, they might have a different priority. Hmm. 
Yeah, I love that. And I love that organic approach that you've had. So tell me about um, the sort of unique model that Glasswing International has in the work that you do at schools and in communities. We are a, an organization that started in El Salvador. So that's something that's that's um, that's very important to us. We said we, we want to have an organization that started in the region that we're working in, or at least, you know, where we're starting to work. Um, that's very responsive to what I was just mentioning, local priorities and um, and just looking to partner with institutions that are already working, particularly um, public institutions. And I think it's mm. volunteerism is something that's always been really important for us. We see that the human potential, uh, not just in, in our education programs and seeing it with kids, but also young people and and community members as an, as an incredible resource that's often untapped because we don't we aren't necessarily providing enough opportunities for people to contribute their time and skills and interests. So um, those those kind of three aspects are really important to us. And then having the agility and flexibility. You know, now we're over five hundred people in twelve countries, and I think the feeling at the organization is still that it's a this small agile organization that's willing to innovate and at the same time being rigorous about how how we're learning like how we're doing i think so it's being willing to innovate and do things but also making sure that we are evaluating and, and particularly by those we work with right like by students we work with like are are we having the results we seek and if not what do we need to do differently so maintaining a humility as an organization to say yeah, this isn't working or let's see, let's have someone else evaluate this and see um, within a more unbiased way. So I think those are kind of characteristics that have helped the organization grow um, and and develop partnerships that are strong and and transparent. I mean, that's why we named it Glasswing, right? It's a butterfly transformation, transparent wings. It's a butterfly that exists in the region, the Glasswing butterfly, and it and the clear wings for transparency. And also it can hold like 15 or 20 times its weight. So those characteristics that that um, we believe in uh, are also, you know, so in, the, in our name. <laughs> mm, that's beautiful. And, and yeah, I was I actually had that as one of the questions I really wanted you to explain the name because it is so beautiful, that sort of metaphor. And um, and you're working in some of the communities that are the most struck and most vulnerable um, to sort of violence and, and gang violence. Um, how do you see that the model that Glasswing International has um, really helps disrupt the cycle of violence in those communities? Yeah. You know, one thing that I think is super important in the work, and I know a lot of other organizations do this, we learn a lot from other organizations working with young people, but something that's so important is, for example, is is just, and this sounds may sound cliche, but I think it's something that is worth repeating and repeating, is coming from a place of strengths, right? Like when, when we're working in an organization, yes, we identify the organizations that are, stig- you know, they're, they're stigmatized by people, people think, or they're um, marginalized or, um, and and for us, it's really important to not perpetuate that uh, in the work we're doing. And for example, when we talk about, you know, we don't even talk about gangs. And every, you know, I know that it's everybody talks about it as a huge problem for us. We really do positive youth development work. So we never ask, we don't ask, like we don't for us, it's not 
a criteria for working or not working with anybody. For us, it's just working with young people and providing them with opportunities, right? And and believing like a real fundamental belief that everybody deserves access to opportunities, right? So it's it's about equity and um and just coming at it as like this is work with young people, right? No, no like extra uh labels or anything. It's just it's working with young people and then always asking asking them what makes sense, like what makes sense for you given your context. I mean 60, we've hired 60 former students from our programs. They're on our team. Mm-hmm. So we take very seriously the getting that feedback and make, I mean, I'm 46. I would, I don't know what a 15 year old is going to be interested in. Um, so I think that, you know, but, but we do definitely work in places where very, you know, where fewer organizations are working and where we do believe communities have been impact impacted unfairly by a lot of these, uh, a lot of these barriers to to entry or to accessing opportunities, whether they're mm-hmm. educational, recreational, economic. So the issue of inclusion is important. And, and the exciting thing is once volunteers and everybody starts going into the schools to, to give hours and volunteer and run after school programs or whatever, you know, it 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 changes. Like, you know, kids believe what they're told by society and it's not fair when you just keep being told that you come from a tough place it's mm. you know you're- I think that I I really love this and I think that it's something that will resonate with most of us I think I mean um, I can yeah. I it feels like it's you know can be you know the same situation as here you know in the areas where there is more violence there is often a way of speaking about those areas speaking about the people there um can you like because I love how so much of the work that you're doing is about sort of ending hopelessness and really seeing each individual's potential. Um, so how do you sort of count? Like I'm sure that you also meet a lot of those conversations where people would rather invest in more powerful, you know, crackdowns on gangs and you know longer sentences and more police presence. I mean what's your view on that how you know do you meet yeah. those those you know differing views sure i mean i think there are different views you know i think we look at the evidence right like so for us it's not a taking a side on any sort of political spectrum and this is globally i think there's so many conversations globally about about justice systems in general about prison systems and um what we look at is over time that doesn't work, right? So, so violence can beget violence, and and that can be in the form of more perpetration or more victimization. So, if it doesn't work, it doesn't really make sense to do it, right? So, um, what we do know works is addressing, for example, addressing issues of trauma. So, if you've been exposed to violence, how can we equip? people in a non-clinical way, because we know we don't have enough clinicians in most countries. Unfortunately, we don't have enough psychologists or social workers, but how do we equip people with, because people are very resilient, but how do we equip them with an understanding of how stress and trauma affects? So, so if I understand how stress and trauma affect me behaviorally, emotionally, um, just physically, like physiologically, if I understand how it affects me, 
then I can understand why I'm reacting a certain way. And then I can learn to cope with that, with the consequences of that. So, and then, and then, so once I understand that and I know how to manage it, I can also understand why someone may be reacting to me in a way that, you know, my God, what, what's wrong with you? Like, why are you reacting that way? So I think it, if we understand ourselves better and we understand how to take care of ourselves, cope and start to heal, we are also understanding better that other people's behavior doesn't define them as a person. So when we think about a young person joining a gang or a young person, whatever they're involved in or behave, you know, getting involved in criminal activity, that is not a bad or a good person. It's a person that is engaging in behavior probably is a consequence of a lot of different factors. And, and it gives you hope to understand. So if I'm going through a lot of stress or I've gone through, and, and you work with girls, right? I mean, you know, this. girls go through so many adverse experiences. Um, and then sometimes it's like, you're almost blamed for what you've gone through, like for what's happened to you, as opposed to, you know, they're like, what's your problem? And it's like, no, it's not. What's my problem. It's, you know, I, this is what I've gone through and, and, you know, I haven't had the, the, the tools or support system. So I think that's something that's really important when we think about violence. The other thing is that interpersonal connections and these things are not, this is something that exists and it's strengths-based. Having a, a relationship with a caring adult is proven, and this is science, has proven to be one of the most important things for someone to be able to manage and heal from tra trauma and stress. So what's amazing is if we can turn the narrative around and think about um not always like think about preventing violence, preventing violence, which even that sounds violent, right? It's like, how do you prevent? It's more about how do we build this like movement where we can all be part of um, creating an ecosystem, right? That understands better how to handle our own emotions and, and, and then understand that other people are also going through that. So it's separating behavior from person. Um, having a better understanding, which can be called, you know, trauma psychoeducation or whatever. And then drawing from all these ancient healing practices that so many people have done for millennia. And we've lost that, right? We've lost that. Not everything has to be clinical. Like they're incredible healing, collective healing, community-based healing practices that um, we believe are much better strategies to addressing, um, to preventing kind of these drivers of or perpetuating violence in um, in a lot of different kinds of contexts, whether it's related to gender or crime and violence or, you know, intrafamiliar violence. So. Mm. Oh, I love that approach. And I, I feel like it's so needed to hear about the work that you're doing. I mean, for me um, and for many people who are, you know, working with social justice or, you know, different things around the world, um, it's, it's just... Yeah, so important. And I think, um, I mean, as Glasswing, you do a lot of education for, um, you know, teachers, for nurses, for people in, working in, within healthcare. Um, but you also do a lot of different clubs at, you know, creating these community centers at local schools. And um, can you give an example of like a, a girls club or, or something else that you've done and sort of speak a little bit about the gender lens that you have on the work that you do as well? Sure. I mean, we, you know, we started um, working, one of my mentors is kind of a champion of girls. Her name's Judith Bruce and she worked at the Pop Council. And so I learned 
with her, a lot of this girl's work working and um, there's, there's so much to think about when we, when we think about gender dynamics and, and overlaying with culture, like you overlay cultural things and, and economic exclusion and social exclusion and, and the isolation, like when girls have to be caretakers in their house, what that does. And um, they're forced out of the education system and all these things. Uh, so I think there's a lot to learn. And I believe there's a big community of us that are working in this space. We have also been working more and more in space of mass, just with boys as well. Um, and I, and I think that that's something really important to bring in because a lot of what the girls tell us is like, we can, you know, we're shifting paradigms around us as like assets and then building our own social and economic and, um, our own kind of assets in our own lives and safety, but we need to work. They said it, we need to work with our parents, with our brothers, um, with our cousins, with our neighbors. So we're thinking a lot more about that. Um, and everything from, I mean, one of our, recently we were in one of our girls clubs and the girls were like, you know, the thing is you actually don't even feel like you exist. Like you're so in, you feel so invisible um, in your life. You're just kind of going through tasks that you're told to do. And, and sometimes just feeling seen and, and being in a space with other girls, with peers where you're listened to gives you a sense of actually being physically present. So it's so and you know this from working in this space, it's so extreme that like feeling like you don't even exist, that you're not worthy, that you're not, um, that's extreme, right? I mean, that's crazy to feel like you you don't even exist in the world. And they said it in Spanish, it was like, que no soy nadie, que no existo, I am no one, right? I don't exist. So I think there's a lot of work um, that we need to do, but I think we need to include um, all, you know, all of communities um, in parallel while we provide unique and specialized support, not specialized, special and directed support to girls and young mm-hmm. women and women. Um, and particularly at the community level, because we, for example, if, if a woman needs a shelter, there are so few in most of the world, there's nowhere to go. So it's like, how do we build those supports? And it goes back to mental health. It goes back to community building. How do we build the supports so girls can identify places that are safe and boys um, that are where they feel safe and they can access support. And so I think it's it's as much as it as much as it is about the intrapersonal. We need to think in in kind of community and in ecosystems because um, we need those kind of we need those kind of systems activated in communities where someone can go because sometimes it'll even expose girls to more risks if they, you know, if they come back home in a context of Mm. um, violence and they, and they're very vocal about their rights, which they should be, but we need to make sure that there are supports in place. So, um, and even in our after school programming, uh, we, we, sometimes you have to more actively recruit girls and young women who feel like it's, you know, it's not necessarily something that you know, a lot of people say this globally, and we've learned a lot just to STEM and other fields where girls just don't automatically uh, sign up. And we we just had our, we do the world robotics, we have robotics team. And it's great, because we've been having our teams win a lot of tournaments lately. And they always mixed, right? It's girls and boys. And I think that's it's important to, for girls to show each other um, 
you know, when they get involved in local community politics, when they um, support their peers, they don't have to be in traditional positions of leadership necessarily, but um, I think it's, it's important for girls to see other girls, right? And that peer, uh, kind of those, that role modeling and those examples and that community mobilization and engagement, I think is key. We've learned that from other peer organizations and from girls themselves and in, in communities. Mm. And Selena, you've been working with Glasswing since 2007. And I'm sure that, you know, you have lots of, of positive stories and inspiration to share. But can you share, um, you know, some of the progress that you've seen? I mean, you've expanded to so many countries in the region, um, but also perhaps a story of positive change um, that you've seen through the work with Glasswing. Yeah, I mean, it's a, we have such a great team. I feel lucky to work with amazing colleagues that become your friends, right? Because you're so passionate about what you're doing and um, friends within Glasswing and just friends from so many other organizations too. Um, there are definitely so many stories. I just, I met this young woman. Um, I went to visit one of our programs in Guatemala in the uh, Mayan Highlands. And what we were in a circle with a bunch of different kids and, and one girl um, I, we were wearing masks, but she, I, there was a guy next to her, another one of our, like a young man who was in the program and he had lowered his mask. And I could see that he would speak as we were speaking to her, but I didn't know that she couldn't hear. Do you know what I mean? So I didn't understand what was going on. And then afterwards, it turns out she, she couldn't hear at all. She's a young woman. She, I think she became deaf at like six or seven and and so afterwards I understood and she could read lips perfectly. So then when we would speak, you know, we were lowering our mask and at the end, but she didn't, you know, she was so confident and she, she, she was like, so she didn't like, you know, tell everybody, um, I, you know, I wish she had told us, but we were all kind of talking and everybody at their mask. Um, and she was, she said, you know, this, it's a program, it's like a central American service program. So it's a youth service corps. And she said, you know, for me, uh, I think that we have a lot of issues here in the country, in the region with inclusion. And I and she was she hadn't finished high school and she wasn't working. So she's in this program. Kind of those are criteria to enroll in the program. And she's like, I really want to get involved in advocacy and inclusion. Like I want to dedicate my life to making sure that other people um you know, who can't see, who can't hear, who have different, face different challenges and different abilities have the opportunity to participate fully in society. And I love, I loved meeting her. Of course, I'm like, I need to hire this girl because we can always improve in this space. But um, I think her confidence, I think the way she was able to communicate perfectly at all, you know, I think um, I liked the way, you know, kind of they were teaming up and she was receiving support. And I thought that was something, it kind of left an impact on me um, and, and made, you know, inspired me. I was like, she's a, you know, natural woman leader. And I loved it. And I, and, and, you know, she talked about how before, how it affected her confidence, how it affected the way she did things and how she was really feeling, um, like this fire in her belly to do more. And, and I thought that was awesome because you don't have to be only 14 or 12 or 13. You can discover that fire in your belly when you're in your early twenties too. And I think it behooves us to work with young women as well, right? Not only girls. Um, and I think, you know, generally there's so many amazing stories. We have we have had girls and young women who have had babies very young 
And, and that tends to kind of isolate you a lot of times, right? Because if you're a teenager and you're a mom and you're 14, all of a sudden your social circle becomes smaller and smaller because you have all these responsibilities. You probably had to leave school. And, and it's so awesome to see when these young moms, young women, um, we've been able to work on a program where, you know, we're training women to run programs with other young moms so they can do like early childhood work and promote like the optimal development for their kids. And I think those transformations, particularly in young girls and, and young women, I find really exciting because then you think of just intergenerationally what that's going to do. I don't have to convince you, but I, I just think of girls and women. It's they're a force, right? Like this is this is where it's at, um, and and that those are kind of individuals that get me really excited, and and I'm fortunate to meet um, young women like this pretty often. I mean, there's so many. It's just giving women the space. And the opportunities and holding up a mirror and being like, look what we see in you. Because if you could see what we see, right? The things you could you could do. So mm. yeah, and I love that. I, I love how, you know, throughout your work, a lot of the focus is very, you know, focused on the individual, focused on sort of the change that you can see happen happening within individuals that you're working with. Um, and measuring that across communities. And it's not necessarily looking at rates of um, rates of violence and sort of how what what impact you're having on sort of homicide rates or you know violence rates, um, but really looking at the changes within individuals in the community that are then building this ecosystem that becomes this beautiful transformation. Um, so can you just talk a little bit about that, about how you measure the impact of, of your work? Sure. Yeah, and that's a really good question, actually, because we get that question sometimes from funders. They're like, so how do you know you're preventing violence, right? And and a lot of times, like if you have, like violence in a community can be a result of a lot of factors. It can also move. And um, so for us, that focus on the person is important, just like you said. And um, the way we measure it is the is the skills that we're able, we focus a lot on social emotional skills. Um, and when we talk about resilience, it's they're already really resilient. So if we can enhance that, great. But it's also creating these space, safe spaces, whether it's in schools or, um, and we have a lot of different ways to measure it. We do a lot of uh, work with just monitoring and evaluation generally. So we have scales and surveys we've been evaluated. You know, one thing I would say to other entrepreneurs who, who are, you know, are part of your network is there are a lot of people who want to do research. And sometimes we have to reach out to them because sometimes you'll see these universities approach these huge NGOs to do evaluations. Don't be shy and reach out to universities in your country um, or not in your country and say, listen, we do work. I see that you do research on this. Would you be interested in um, doing some research with us. Uh, so don't be shy because a lot of the evaluations we've done um, have been because originally we would reach out to people as specialists. So for example, um, recently, uh, like I guess in the beginning of the pandemic or right before, we were asking young people what social emotional skills they felt were the most important because we can look at all the research globally. Um, so we know creativity, collaboration, curiosity, right? And so we kind of came, you know gave them this huge list, and what was interesting is that we kind of we coincided with most of them determination, but there's one that we didn't include, 
And they, this, the, the focus group of young people that we are working with included as a skill they wanted to develop. I mentioned this because it is relevant to research. And what they said is hope. So they said they wanted to develop hope as a skill, which I thought was so interesting because you think wow. hope is something you have or you don't. And it turns out it's a skill you can develop. And so we're like, oh my gosh, first of all, why didn't we think of including hope? Second of all, how do you develop hope as a skill, right? And then you start doing your homework and we reached out to university. In this case, it's Tufts University. And we're like, we know, you know, the researcher, we're like, we know you do a lot of research on hope. So reach out because that's what we do. We do a lot of our own monitoring and evaluation. We don't just use quantitative, qualitative, which you're probably, your audience is super um, really good at, but we try to mix that up to give it like a human, make sure it's like about people, involve young people in, in what we're doing and the evaluations and the questions, make sure it's it makes sense. Um, and then keep changing it because things are going to change. So I think for us, that research, that kind of evaluation on social emotional learning, um, we've learned that it in, in influences academic outcomes, um, which we didn't, that wasn't our goal, but it does. We in health, the same thing. So we do surveys looking at kind of the indicators and what we want to achieve, but then that ends up being very fluid. So we have to maintain like kind of this openness to learning because sometimes we won't get the results we want, which happens. And then how do we need to adjust the program content based on the people we're working with and their feedback? And then how do we adjust the way we measure for that? Because something you see online may not work where you're working, where I'm working. So I think that's a really fluid process and it has to be very adaptable. So for us, that's important. And also look, asking for help. We're always, I literally always write to people asking them for, what do you do? How do you do this? Other organizations, universities, um, because it's, it's hard. It's hard work. Yeah, it is hard work. But I absolutely love that, how that came up with hope as a skill. I mean, given that the work that you're doing is really about you know, getting rid of hopelessness, focusing on the individual, ending, you know, ending violence. Um, do you have an answer to that? I mean, do you have something to share about, you know, how we can build hope as a skill? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, um, there's definitely strategies to build hope, right? And, and I think a lot of it, and we think about hope, and there's like other kind of proxies, like when you you can aspire like futures thinking, aspirational thinking, because we know that sometimes, you know, we can have a really hard time, especially if we're exposed to a lot of stress and trauma. You can't think about the future. You can't envision the future because you're surviving. Literally, it's not a personality or it's your brain is wired to survive when it needs to. So if your brain is surviving and your body, not just your brain, all of you is trying to survive, stay alive and survive. You can't focus on the thrive. You can't focus on the future. So that's all like, you know, we all need to understand that. And sometimes people will be like, oh, you know, that young person was enrolled in the program, but they quit. I'm like, it doesn't matter. Let them enroll again, right? You got to just give people chances because we're, we're you, you have to like shift. Your, a lot of things have to change for you to be able to access opportunities. And I think when we think about a hope, it's a lot of different things, but but in that, thinking about the future, feeling like you even have a future, 
feeling what we talked about earlier with girls, that you're there, that you exist, that you're worthy. Um, so it can be connected to a lot of other results that we work on. And, and we've been asking, we actually had a scale we used in this, like uh, this is last month, we were looking at the results and we're like, that didn't work. So we had like the scale that we found online on hope. So we had to adjust it and look at like what what hope, how, how do people that you're working with define hope? And then you, you know, in order to measure it, it has to be responsive to how I or Julia define hope, right? Like it, it needs to make sense to the person filling out that survey if you're doing a survey or answering that question. And that may be different mm. for different people. So we need to be mindful of that. And and because hope mm. seems abstract, but but someone can describe it for you if you ask them, mm. even if it takes a while. Yeah. Mm. That's beautiful. And I think, yeah. So focusing on on you as an individual then um i think that i mean a lot of the work that you're doing is is about you know long-term work it's about disrupting social norms and ending violence it's really difficult work and i'm sure that sometimes you see some you know pushback and and also the rhetoric in global <laughs> global media and politics it's it's not always um you know shining a, a positive light on the region that you're working with as well and um I'm, that must be really difficult. So how do you yourself um, find the space to, or, or do you have any sort of self-care practices or, or ways that you build resilience for yourself um, to keep doing the working work that you're doing? I mean, I have to say again, like we have an amazing team, so I can't even say that I'm doing this, all this work anymore, right? Like there's so many of us. I, I, I love the field. Like I'm a social worker. I'm a public health person and I don't get to do that much field work anymore. Um, that being said, I think in general, we do talk a lot about self-care because I don't think we're very good at that. Right. And I'm, like, I'm sure most of us and the people who are listening, it's not really, um, you always have like this extreme perspective on well-being, and you're like, even, you know, how can I even think about my well-being when people's situations and circumstances are so extreme? Mm. Um, so there's that weird balance that I always have a hard time with too. Um, and I, and I think I've found that I don't, I, you know, I, I, I have a really, in my personal life, I just, you know, I, I love my family. I have stability in my personal life, which really helps. And I, you know, I have hobbies, but one of the things that, that, that I think is for me, I guess what I would call self-care, cause I'm not very good. We do a lot with mindfulness and all that as an organization and breathing, but what helps me, I love to dance, like even just have a dance party at home by myself. <laughs> but I also love nature and wildlife. So for me, getting outside, um, if I can see animals even better or spend time with, you know, playing with my my son or with the, the, my dogs. So for me, nature and connecting to nature, um, trees, anything is, is really good for me. My body reacts well, I react well. So that's something that's really important to me. Sometimes just playing music. Um, but, you know, I think it's hard. It's easier said than done. Getting enough sleep, not staying up worrying about, you know, whatever issue you're working on or, or worrying about the environment. Or So that kind of personal resilience is, um, I think it's important. I'm, to be honest with you, I'm a student of this. I'm still learning. I don't think I can give many, much advice on it. Um, but I also feel like I have a lot of, stability in the rest of my life and in my, in my work life directly. Like, but 
but it's more exposure to, you know, this vicarious exposure to human suffering that that's, that I think is hardest on those facing these circumstances. Um, and then for those of us who aren't facing the circumstances directly and are witnessing it, um, that kind of secondary trauma. And when I worked on humanitarian aid, it, you just, um, you feel pain, like physical pain, right. With, with the suffering of others. Mm. And, uh, I don't, I don't have an answer. Like, I think it's really hard and I don't, I don't think we can ever figure that out completely. Cause if I ever don't are, are not upset by something, I think I should get out of the field. Mm. You know what I mean? Like it's not to say that resilience makes you not react to it. All I, all I'm saying is sometimes if it doesn't make you burn out, feeling sadness and pain at what you're seeing and reacting to it, it it's okay because what's happening is not normal, yeah. right? So it's like a normal reaction to abnormal things and, and lack of social mm. justice. And mm. um, so I think it's finding that balance of mm. motion. So true. And and I, I agree with you. I don't think we can ever, you know, get rid of those emotions when we see injustice and we witness things that are, are happening that are horrendous. Um, right. I think, you know, that is sort of, I mean, when hopelessness kicks in, that's when sort of that, that emotionless uh, or like, you know, the wall of that we put up, you know, comes into place. So I really, you know, I think that doing the work that you're doing and, and many others, um, it's, it's really just a part of life to have, you know, witness and have those emotions and then give us space to refill, right? Yeah, and get out of the way sometimes. Like, I think sometimes we mm. feel like we need to do everything. And, you know, and again, if there are a lot of other social entrepreneurs or just people working in this sector, sometimes, especially when we're feeling hopeless and burned out, we need to just, we need to get out of the way generally and let other people um, lead and do the work. And I think um, it's hard when you love field work, but I've been learning little by little. It's like, get, just get out of the way. You don't have to go to every meeting. You don't have to, you know, start really picking what you want to do and, and, you know, and volunteering, Right. Because even like there's there's other ways to kind of nurture your soul when when it's also super and it could be with something totally unrelated with what you do. But I think um, getting out of the way is important, particularly if we're feeling fried or burned out or exhausted and cynical or whatever um, mm. feeling. But And that brings me to a final question that I have for you. If you have one piece of advice that you would have wished you had or that you would want to pass along to those who are looking to sort of get engaged, but also perhaps even start their own organizations. Um, what would what piece of advice do you think would be one of the most important pieces of advice that you would want to pass along to, to new social entrepreneurs? I'd say, um, I, I wish I knew, um, I wish I would have asked for more help. You know, I feel like you feel like you have to do things. And there were three of us founders, but in general, I wish we had asked for more help earlier on. Um, and, you know, I think that that's one of them. And then the other is, I wish even earlier on, because we've learned a lot, they're just asking more questions and more frequently. Hmm. Um, ask a lot of questions. Like we we're always reminding ourselves, ask, let's ask again, let's ask again like with the young people we work with, with our colleagues, with our peers. So I think kind of that constant um, feedback loop 
and and then also asking for asking for help. It'll mm-hmm. save saves us time if we do it, and and other people know how to do so many things better than we do that. Um, I find that people are really almost always eager to help. So um, I think in the beginning, we were just trying to go it alone and you felt like you didn't want to burden people. And sometimes the worst they can say is, no, I don't have the capacity or bandwidth, but you know, you're putting yourself out there and you're, you know, all for all the social entrepreneurs, this is hard and exhausting and everybody's so like brave to do this. And especially when you're doing it, if, if any of you are doing it by yourself, which I didn't, I had two other founders, but ask for help. People want to help usually. <laughs> I appreciate that so much. I mean, even being an entrepreneur for more than a decade now, I, I feel like that really hit a chord in, within me. I, I, I really, um, yeah, I'm going to take, take that advice to heart <laughs> because it's true. I mean, we could always use more help and, and it's so often that I at least feel like there's so much, I just feel like I need to do on my own. <laughs> I need to figure it out. So yeah, yeah, that's really helpful. Thank you. And thank you, Selena, for the important work that you're doing. Thank you for taking the time to speak with me and sharing parts of your story with me and the Girls Globe community today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And thank you for having us um, this last swing on, on the program and for having me on. I really appreciate it. And I wish you so much luck with this important work. Thank you so much for building this community and platform for us to be involved in. If you're interested in learning more about the work of Selena's organization, you can head over to glasswing.org. As we spoke about fostering hope as a skill, I truly believe that community and storytelling can have a tremendous impact on fostering that skill. Listening to changemakers like Selena and the other guests on this podcast really gives me hope. And I think that if we put listening into practice and surround ourselves with the things that can help us foster hope, we can begin using hope as a skill in our everyday lives. I also really appreciate what Selena says about what works to change communities that are, that are struck by violence. Um, it's something that I can definitely relate to um, here in Sweden, where our political leaders are talking about cracking down on gang violence or forcing integration by decreasing opportunities for asylum. Um, it's like they aren't looking at the evidence of what truly works to change communities, focusing on the potential of the people in those societies. They completely miss the point and further stigmatize people by talking about these communities time and time again in a very negative light. I greatly appreciate the insights Selena shared, and I hope that you enjoyed this episode too. If you did, please share this episode with a friend or colleague. And remember, if you have a changemaker you'd like to hear from, please go to girlsglobe.org changemaker to nominate them. Also, this is still a new podcast, and I appreciate all your help to make it available for more people by simply rating the podcast in your podcast app. And if you enjoy it, leave a review. This really does help, and so does subscribing. You can subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast app, often by ticking a little check mark or a plus sign. That way you won't miss future episodes either. 
I really appreciate you. Thank you for being here on this journey with me. Until next week, please remember that you truly are a change maker.